I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to my 64th sermon on the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that even though the Lord tells wives to submit to their husbands, the Lord does not make husbands tyrants over their wives. The Lord has given wives a way to control husbands. It's just not by arguing. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. lesson for this morning is the 64th part in our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. The text this morning is in the book of 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 4 and the Bible says this, for when it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So Lord, give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for listening to our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. And as we return to our gender-based historical overview of the Bible, we find a common thread in the remainder of the books of Kings and Chronicles, which are the next books for our consideration. That thread is defined in our text for today, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, which says, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart were not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. Now many people find it difficult to be particularly loyal to the worship of God. And we can begin to see how people define their relationship with God by reading Psalm chapter 46, verse 1, which says, The Lord is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, when we are in trouble, we find God to be a wonderful source of power to rescue us. But the record is that when people are not in trouble, they often turn away from God. Now, why would this be true? Arrogance. People tend to get the big head and forget 
that we exist because God made it possible for us to do so. Now, in earlier sermons, we spoke extensively of King David, who was able to defeat a lion, a bear, the giant Goliath, and Israel's other enemies because he had God on his side and was obedient. But one night up on the roof, David became arrogant, forsook God, and sinned. And after that display of sinful arrogance, David had trouble until the day he died. Now, arrogance is that which makes us decide to disobey the commandments of God. Arrogance begins when we desire to do or have that which God denies us. God told David in 2 Samuel 12 and 8, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Nonetheless, after receiving the blessings that God had for him, David arrogantly decided to take a woman who was someone else's wife. And God asked David in 2 Samuel 12 and 9, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. And then God pronounced sentence on David in 2 Samuel 12 and 10, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now, it is true that a king is generally more likely to, to develop arrogance when he is surrounded by unbelievers. As God tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? Now David had several wives, but he never actually had a harem. His son Solomon decided to acquire a harem when he became king, and his harem was not of Israelite women. Solomon traded and married daughters of the other kings in his geographical area, like boys traded baseball cards with each other when I was a kid. And all these king's daughters that became Solomon's wives were young and noble, and because of the resources available to their fathers and to their husband Solomon, had the wherewithal to acquire beauty treatments, perfumes, clothing, and anything else available to women of that day that would make them as attractive as they could possibly be. So Solomon amassed a large harem of beautiful and extremely desirable women. Unfortunately for Solomon, the preponderance of the women in his harem did not worship God. First Kings 11 and 4 says, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Now, my friends, the God of the Bible is a God that requires restraint. Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And God's commandments largely consist of thou shalt not. God told the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 7 through 
through 11, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And that Deuteronomy 5, 17 through 21 says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. And in religious systems other than Judaism and Christianity, these restraints do not necessarily apply. The first restraint, having no other God than the God of the Bible, precludes the possibility that there could be other religious belief systems at all. What are the atheists, the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists, and those that worship the various idol gods of the Native Americans, the Mayans, other indigenous tribes in Mexico and the Far East to do with such a commandment? What are those that want to have an abortion to do with you shall not murder? Now that medical science has conclusively proven that an unborn child is a different person with a different DNA structure than his or her mother and to kill him or her is murder. The unbelievers that want abortion ask, do you mean to say, God, that we don't have the right to do that which we want to do with our own bodies? Our bodies are ours, and you have no right to regulate our activities. And what is a man whose wife either physically cannot or does not want to have sex with him supposed to do with you shall not commit adultery? Does such a man simply have to go without sex because his wife is not forthcoming? What is a hungry man without a job and money supposed to do with you shall not steal? He has to eat, doesn't he? And what are we supposed to do with you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor when the rumor is just too juicy to keep? You know, somebody told me that she's having an affair with the workman that comes to her house every day. It must be true because what could he possibly be fixing every day? Are you trying to say that I can't talk about it? And coveting is just natural when your neighbor has something that you don't. What are we supposed to do with you shall not cover anything that is your neighbor's? But God is a God that demands that we restrain ourselves. And we can see from these examples, God demands more restraint than people want to have. So people come up with decisions that are contrary to the commandments of God. Solomon's wives were able to lead Solomon into these contrary decisions, although Solomon was well acquainted with God and had spoken to God face to face twice. First Kings chapter 11, verse 6 to 8 records, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place 
for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now God warned the Israelites, Solomon included, against this action. God said of marrying unbelieving women in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so that the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. God told the Israelites about the danger of marrying individuals that do not have a history of being worshipers of God in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and repeated it to the Christian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now an unbeliever can go to church a few times in order to fulfill a superficial requirement, but God admonishes us to marry someone that has a track record of being a committed believer in God, both by word and by deed. Now, the attraction of unbelievers to believers is obvious. Unbelievers are as physically attractive, or probably even more physically attractive than believers, simply because unbelievers probably spend more time and resources on making themselves attractive. I have seen women on the dance floor in outfits, outfits rather, that people would not wear in a Christian setting because the outfits are too suggestive and immodest. And at one dance venue, a young fellow came up to me and asked me to teach him to dance because, as he said, if I could dance like you, I could get all the girls in here. So unbelievers tend to be more attractive, meaning more sexually available. After all, the desire to mate is given to us by God and affects believers as well as unbelievers. But God tells us to choose our mating partner judiciously, not based upon appearances and availability, but to pick a partner that is appropriate because it is God's plan that we only have one mate, that is, one sexual partner during our entire life because of the bonding effect that sex has on people. Now, the average person in our society would consider that God desires that we only have one sexual partner during our entire life to be a ridiculous statement. But nevertheless, that statement is true. God desires that we exercise the sexuality that he has given us to form a singular, deep, and lasting bond with just one person of the opposite sex even as the marriage vows tell us, forsaking all others for as long as we both shall live. And we have a much better chance to remain loyal to God if the person with whom we make ourselves one has the same objective to remain loyal to God as do we. And if a man, if a woman marries a man that is not loyal to God, she has a problem. Because Ephesians 5.22 commands, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And if a Christian woman marries an unbeliever, 
and he forbids her to attend church meetings, how is she going to follow the commandment of Ephesians 5.22 while simultaneously following the commandment of Hebrews 10.24 and 25, which says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So God, who has foresight that we do not, gives us the commandment to marry a believer so that we can avoid this problem. Some problems cannot be fixed. Thus, they are to be avoided. Now, when a Christian man marries, he soon finds that God commands that he gives his wife almost unlimited power over him. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Christ's commitment to the church led Christ to his death. And the parallel between the commitment of Christ and marriage is that which I mean by the fact that God commands that a husband give his wife almost unlimited power over him. And God has equipped women to command almost unlimited devotion from their husbands. Genesis 2.18 tells us, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And since God created women to be men's helpers, it is true that men, generally speaking, are emotionally dependent on women. The human male, from birth to death, feels a very real need to be connected to a woman. A male infant receives his very sustenance from his mother. And if the mother shows her male child the requisite love that a mother generally has for her son as he develops into childhood, he becomes emotionally dependent on mama, meaning that he, meaning that he needs mama's approval and thus wants nothing more than to please her in order to obtain it. And as the boy approaches chronological maturity, he may feel the need to separate from his parents to become his own man, but even through his separation, his emotional dependence on his mother never wanes. So the scripture, it is not good for a man to be alone, means that a man needs the approval of a woman. So the boy remains emotionally dependent upon his mother until he meets the woman whom he can make his wife and transfer his emotional dependence to her. And the wife upon whom a husband is emotionally dependent can generally get him to do whatever she wants, not by command or intellectual persuasion, but by emotional seduction. Ephesians tells us that a man needs to be in charge of his wife and family, and it goes without saying that he will resist his wife's command. On the other hand, a wife holds the key to her husband's emotional well-being when she gives him his emotional approval, and a husband will do almost anything to get this emotional approval, especially when it is dangled before him by her seductive suggestion. I can remember in my own case that just before my wife and I were scheduled to marry, 
She wanted to change the living arrangement that I planned for us after we married. Since I was still going to college, I planned for us to live in married housing, but she wanted to live in an apartment. As we discussed the situation, she pointed out her desire to me, and I countered her point with the point that I could not afford an apartment since I was still in school. But she smiled at me, tilted her head, looked deeply, coquettishly, and seductively into my eyes, and told me, you'll get a job. And I went right out and got one. But seduction in marriage is becoming a lost art in our society. There was a time when mothers and grandmothers would train their daughters on that which was known as feminine wiles, by which a wife was effectively able to influence a husband into doing that which she wanted, but those days appear to be gone. Once women say I do, they tend to think that seduction is beneath them, but that thought is from the devil. Seduction is the design of God for female control of intimate relationships. And one of the reasons for the high divorce rate in our society is that rather than using seduction, women in this age want to argue men into doing that which they want, which simply does not work. If you go back to Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands and to, as to the Lord, we see that, that the woman that argues with her husband is not in compliance with God's word. But even though the Lord tells wives to submit, the Lord does not make husbands tyrants over their wives. The Lord has given wives a way to control their husbands. It's just not by arguing. First Peter chapter three, verse one says, wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And Peter tells us that wives can have their way with their husbands without even speaking a word. Men are, by design, emotionally dependent on their wives. And if wives use the tools that they are given, that being their conduct, to positively control their husband's emotions, rather than trying to use the negative tool of argument, wives will, according to the scripture, be successful in getting that which they desire from even those men that do not obey the word of God. So, young brothers, if you meet a woman that wants to tell you what to do, don't get emotionally involved with her. Find a woman that understands feminine wiles and knows how to use influence rather than one that prefers to argue or fancies herself to be a drill sergeant. And ladies, you can get your husband to do anything that you want within reason if you start stop arguing with him and use your God-given feminine wiles on him. And if you don't know how to do so, see me after service and I can recommend some reading material that will help you to learn the techniques. Now, God has designed the marital relationship between husbands and wives to work in a certain way. Husbands have authority while wives have influence. Now, when the question is asked, which is more powerful, authority or influence? The answer to the question 
is that neither authority nor influence will work without the love that each partner needs to have for the other. Neither husbands nor wives have fiat power. Men must exercise their authority with love, even as women must exercise their influence with love. And if you are any good at it, flirting and seduction are fun. That is, that is that which God meant when he said in Ecclesiastes 9 and 9, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. If either the husband or the wife in a marriage decides to experiment with a different methodology, it is unlikely that their experiment will be successful. But Solomon's wives were good at using their influence on him. Speaking of Solomon's wives, the B portion of 1 Kings 11 and 2 tells us, Solomon clung to these in love. And Solomon so loved his foreign wives that they were able to influence him to disobey God, whom Solomon had spoken face to face twice. And Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, which gives you some idea of the power that seduction has, even over the most logical, rational, and intelligent of men. God tells us to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers in part, because Solomon was not the only king that forsook God because of the seduction of an unbelieving wife. 1 Kings 16, 29-33 tells us, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned in Israel and Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then Ahab set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria, and Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And the name of Jezebel is known in both biblical and secular history as that of a woman who wielded great power over her husband, which she used for evil. Jezebel was opposed to the worship of God, so much so that she influenced Ahab not only to make idols of Baal and to worship him, but also to kill all the prophets of God that she could reach in Israel. And because of the extent of Jezebel's wicked influence over Ahab, God sent the prophet Elijah to decree a punishment on Ahab and Israel. As 1 Kings 17 and 1 says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And the resulting drought and the famine began to cripple Israel. God used a woman to provide for Elijah 
as 1 Kings 17, 8 through 14 records. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So Elijah arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterwards, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Now the woman did not argue with Elijah, although the draught and the woman's lack of food made it somewhat counterintuitive and precarious for the woman to follow Elijah's instruction. 1 Kings 17, 15, and 16 tell us, so she went away and did, according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. So not only did God make provisions for the prophet, but also for the woman that chose to be obedient to him and for her son. The prophet lived in the house with the woman, not conjugally, but as a boarder in an upper room. The woman continued to prepare food for Elijah as the flour was not used up and the oil continued to flow. But although the woman and her son had sustenance because of Elijah, tragedy befell her, as 1 Kings 17, 17 and 18 tell us. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick, and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in it. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to my remembrance and to kill my son? Now Elijah understood the woman's distress and recognized his responsibility to take care of the woman even as she had been taking care of him. So Elijah went down in prayer to the Lord, as 1 Kings 17, 19-23 records, and Elijah said to the woman, Give me your son. So she took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and the child revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. 
Now, Elijah had no conjugal connection with the widow, but simply proximity to her. Nonetheless, Elijah felt responsible to help and comfort the woman in her hour of need simply because that feeling of responsibility is built into men that are in fulfilling relationships with women, whether those relationships are sexual or not. And that feeling of responsibility is God's plan that causes husbands to take care of their wives. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 25, 28 through 31, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus tells us in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And God tells us to love one another because he loves us all. He tells us in John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, can you imagine living in an environment in which condemnation is not an issue, but one in which the overriding consideration is love? That is the environment that Jesus wants us to develop, especially in our marital relationships, but in all of our other relationships as well. And James tells us in James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So arguments, self-seeking, envy or confusion between husband and wife, or between anyone in any relationship is not the function of the Holy Spirit, but of demons. 
The wisdom that is from above is that which seeks to peacefully attain mutual objectives. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And Jesus did not come to us fomenting war against ungodliness, but Jesus came to bring reconciliation. Jesus gave himself as a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the whole world to reconcile us to God. Jesus did not come demanding that we either conform to a long list of ceremonial commandments or face condemnation, but merely that we believe in the correctness of his command to love one another and treat one another as we would want to be treated. Jesus did so because he recognized that relationship is more effective than rules and regulations to bring men into conformity with that which God says. In other words, we are more likely to obey a God that we love than one that we fear. So God has chosen to love us and to admonish us to love one another. And Galatians 5.14 tells us, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So as we go down from this place, let us each resolve to use the individual attributes that the Lord has given us to show love to one another. Let us resolve to be done with strife, confusion, and self-seeking, and to exercise the love of Christ, especially in our most intimate marital relationships, which are the relationships in which we have the most opportunity to emulate Christ. Let our hearts remain loyal to God as we come, become one with one another, even as Christ has loved us. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson, and we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to understand your plan for our lives. Help us to understand that it's not about arguing and strife. It's not about self-seeking and rudeness and coldness, but that you have admonished us to love one another, and you have so constructed our relationships that we can most enjoy them if we love one another. And Lord, we ask you that as we go down from this place, that you would help us to remember these things, not just in this house, while we are discussing them, but when we are in the world, when we are faced with those that do not have the spirit of love, that may even reside in our own households. But you, we ask you, Lord, that you would allow us to pray, even as Elijah prayed and brought the boy back to life that love might be brought back to life in those relationships that we have with the one that we promised to love at the altar on that wedding day. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house, and we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place, and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. 
for rising from the dead on that Sunday. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.